Good morning, NRF family. Um, thank you for following along with us as we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, as I promised in the recording from the last sermon that I uh, forgot <laughs> to record, um, I realized that we had some recording issues uh, that were, again, my fault, when we ended up doing the first sermon in our Matthew series. And I kind of wanted to record that one um, not, not so much because then I have a complete set online, but you know, we, we try to build a little bit off of each week when we come to the text to say, you know, whatever we're reading and understanding in this chapter is pretty well driven by the chapters that come before it. Cause these are, you know, authors that are telling a story, trying to show us, lead us to something. So it kind of helps to have Matthew 1 in there because it uh, gives the foundation really for where we're starting for the whole rest of the book. Um, and I, I, and that sermon had connected the end of Hebrews, which was the book we'd walked through prior to the beginning of Matthew. So I wanted to go back and touch on Matthew 1 again just so that we kind of saw I mean, what is Matthew really driving at? What is he getting at over the course of his gospel? So Matthew, the connection between Matthew and Hebrews kind of lies in the audience, right? That Matthew wrote his gospel for a message uh, similar to the audience of the book of Hebrews. You know, these are former Jews who were starting to follow Christ, uh, but they're really struggling to grasp and be encouraged in who he is. So each week as we walk through Matthew's gospel, you know, I've been trying to have us just look at the question, what is Matthew trying to show us about who Jesus is each week? What is Jesus? Um, and then that answer to, you know, tells us a lot about who we are uh, and what God is trying to do in us and in the world today. So Matthew 1 starts kind of with just this big picture that's going to keep kind of echoing throughout each chapter of the book, each story of Jesus's life that he decides to record or was led by the Spirit to record. All of this kind of starts from Matthew 1. And the big idea in Matthew 1 is that Jesus Christ has the right to redeem and reign over us because he pursues God's covenant of reconciliation. So these themes are going to be all throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus has the right to redeem us He has the right to reign over us um, because he pursues God's covenant of reconciliation. So I'll read for us Matthew chapter 1 and we'll dive in. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, 
Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It's a lot of names. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And after her husband Joseph, uh, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not take Mary, or do not fear, excuse me, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, we are grateful that Jesus has the right to redeem us. Lord, that we know and see brokenness in us, in the world around us, in others. Father, we, we are aware of sin. And we are aware that as hard as we try for us, for others, we cannot fix it ourselves. So we are grateful that your son has the right to redeem us. But Lord, we're also grateful that he has the right to reign over us. Lord, that as he leads us, leads us as our head into new life, that we actually are capable of growing in you and growing in your spirit so that we do not live in our brokenness anymore. That if we allow you to reign over us, Lord, that you will change us to not be living in our brokenness anymore. And we're grateful, Father, that we've seen this because of who your son is and what he's done. Uh, so as we have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew each week, now going back to reread Matthew 1, Father, show, and show me today things that I've missed or um, just remind me of where you're at as we continue moving forwards. Uh, God, it's been really cool to walk through the Gospel of Matthew and just come face to face with this is who Jesus is and this is what you are doing in him and through him in the Holy Spirit that you are doing, you're trying to do in and through us today too. So we're grateful today for you, Lord, and your Son. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So Matthew opens, if you weren't sure, with a genealogy, a list of a ton of names, and he's showing us 
who Jesus is from the very beginning. There's a couple key things to notice on, though, that that really clue in to what Matthew is trying to show his audience. And he starts right at the beginning by introducing Jesus to us as the son of David and the son of Abraham. So we're going to look at each of those two things. The first one, let's start with son of Abraham. That piece is going to show us that Jesus has the right to redeem us. So verse 2 Matthew ties Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. And for his primarily Jewish audience, he's intentional uh, to connect Jesus to the Jewish heritage to show how he fills all these Old Testament messianic prophecies that he's going to do this over and over again in his gospel. The Jews struggled to accept Jesus as the Old Testament Messiah. And this link to Abraham showed that Jesus truly had the right to redeem God's people. But in verse 2, Matthew also links Jesus to Judah, which is interesting because even though Judah was the fourth born son of Jacob, Judah was the one who received God's covenant blessing after his older brothers disqualified themselves from it. And interestingly enough, guys, there is a pattern we see in how Judah's older brothers got dropped or you know discarded themselves from the covenant. So Reuben, Reuben the oldest slept with one of his father's concubines. Which, is, which for the Jews and in the ancient world was a picture of trying to take his father's place, right? So, you know, not just in power, but also in society and also in what the father had to bless others with, Abraham having the covenant. Simeon and Levi killed an entire city after their sister was assaulted, right? So these men showed a, a desire to uh, punish wickedness, or to try to take the matters into their own hands, if you will. As far as like when we are seeing things, when we are desiring things, we are taking it into our own hands. But God's covenant doesn't seek to punish or to root out wickedness so much as it seems to redeem it. So God moves on from the three older brothers to say, now let's look at the brother who actually, who I can work through to bring redemption. Verse 5, Boaz is another example of this. He upholds and values the life of Ruth and Naomi, honestly, as one who knows how destitute these women are in this ancient culture, right? With no family left, who's going to take care of them? If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, you know at the end, the rightful kinsman redeemer balks at the opportunity to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz marries Ruth, showing how God's Messiah would take the right to redeem God's people. In verse 1, in verse 17, and then again in verse 18, Matthew even tips his hand to show who Jesus is by calling him the, the title of Christ, right? Christ was not Jesus' last name. The Greek Christos, it's, it's a title. It comes from the Hebrew word translated Messiah in the Old Testament. Matthew is saying from the beginning, Jesus is this Old Testament Messiah. He has the right to redeem the people of God. And Matthew continues this idea in Jesus's birth story, right? He doesn't just focus on the details around the birth, but he focuses on Joseph's reaction in verse 19. It says, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her, you know, Mary, to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly, right? Joseph didn't want to shame Mary by publicly casting her out, but he still struggled with, you know, but what does it look like to actually redeem this situation, 
And I don't want to punish her, but I don't really know what redemption looks like. And the angel shows up and says, no, Joseph, God is calling you to live out his heart for redemption to Mary. Verse 20, do not leave her. We are going to show you how to redeem, not just Mary, but redeem your place in the covenant work. If you get rid of Mary, Joseph, you're not going to be in this covenant either. So redeem, redemption is what he's after. So from the beginning, Matthew desires his audience to know Jesus is the Christ, the son of Abraham, the one who has God's covenant blessing, the right to redeem, right? And we know, we know we need redemption in the world. So how good is it to know that Jesus is the one who can redeem. But Matthew is also not just showing Jesus as a redeemer, but also one who had the right to reign, reign over us. So the first century Jews struggled to believe that Jesus Christ had the right to redeem God's people because he didn't come, for for some, with the power expected of God's Messiah. Right? That he didn't come as a conquering king. He didn't come in the way most people expected. But without this power, many people thought, well, there's no way Jesus can do all these things he says he's going to do. How do you redeem someone without power? So Matthew also shows how Jesus has the right to reign over us by linking him now to David. Matthew in verse 1 links Jesus actually before even to Abraham to David. He refers to Jesus as the son of David in his gospel account more than any other New Testament writer. Why? That's a big question. Why? David epitomized the Messiah figure for Israel as few other Old Testament figures could. You think about who David was. David was a political leader, right? He established God's people as a united body, as a favored kingdom on earth under God's law. So David had that going for him. He was also an establishment leader, right? He, through military conquests, through power, David made Israel stronger as a nation than they ever were under Saul. David was also a heart leader, right? He was the man after God's own heart. Who who wouldn't want the man after God's own heart to reign over them, right? Like the Jews, the Israelites loved that about David. They also appreciated him because he was relatable, right? David's falls are well known. Many of us know the story about David and Bathsheba. Um, David and he struggled with some of his sons, Absalom, uh, the, the oldest comes to mind. Israel could relate with him and find comfort knowing he still ended up being a powerful and conquering earthly leader. And so seeing where the Jews are at here in the first century world, under Roman control and without any real political or earthly power to their name, kind of in their minds watching the moral heart of society around them go away, can you see why waiting for a Messiah figure in David's likeness was so appealing? This Messiah would take over the right to reign on earth, right? Like he's going to make everything good again. And yet this Jesus lives, dies, rises from the dead, but then leaves. Like this, these two things just don't seem to go hand in hand. So Matthew still says, yes, Jesus is this Messiah figure with the right to reign. Verses 6 through 10. This is why Matthew traces Jesus' line through David's sons who reigned as kings over God's people. Like, like, guys, even though Jesus didn't look like you were expecting him to, he had the right to reign. 
And verses 11 through 16, he even, Matthew even leans into this more by showing how, look, David's descendants still carried the right to reign over God's people for the, in the Jewish tradition, even though they were under control of other powers. Right? He traces the sons of David through the deportation to Babylon, verse 11, to say, look, even while they were under control under Babylon, under Persia, under Rome, you guys still track David's line. You still gave leadership to those who were in David's line. Matthew's making a bold claim here, guys. The Messiah's right to reign was not tied to earthly power. Right? It didn't die out when the nation of God's people then lost their power. Verses 20 and 21 further this by noting that when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not Joseph, this is why he could save people from their sins. Not only did he have a physical power, he had a spiritual power. He had the right to redeem and the right to reign. Right, And I, I think... For many Christians today, man, we talk a lot about who should have the right to reign over us, right? We want to know and be careful about the qualifications and experience for those who are in leadership over us. But sometimes we forget (laughs) Jesus is the one that has the right to not just redeem us, not just to save us, but also to reign. Right? Jesus' commands and teachings aren't just good ideas or decent principles. No, Jesus has the right to reign over us. So as Jesus has these rights, where did it come from? And I think, guys, when we, when we ask that question of, man, what was Jesus after? What did he do that actually gave him this? This is where we start to see Matthew unpacking, guys. This is what the life of Jesus looks like. So where did Jesus' right to redeem and reign come from? Matthew teaches us it's because Jesus pursued God's covenant of reconciliation in his life and in his sacrifice. And we are shown this, this pursuit, this thing that ties everything together, we see this in the mention of the five women in the genealogy. Verse 3, Tamar. Right? In Genesis 38, Tamar was given to be the wife of Judah's sons. But as the first two died off, Judah promised her to his third son, and then he forgets about her. And so Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, she's the one that was going to bear the children to carry on the covenant. Right? Judah chose her for his sons to do this. So Judah's forgetting her is essentially him abandoning God's covenant. He said, I will make you the mother of all the covenant children and then doesn't follow through, leaves her. So Tamar disguises herself. She tricks Judah into sleeping with her. And when Judah realized this, he declares something wild, guys. In Genesis 38, 26, he says, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. We go, wait, how does, how does her disguising herself as a prostitute and sleeping with her father-in-law make her more righteous? Then Judah, the the one who through whom David would come, the guy that has the right to redeem her, what what Tamar is doing is she is at the sacrifice of her own body and dignity. She is pursuing 
God's covenant of reconciliation. Right? She is saying, no, you, God has put me in the place of being the one whose offspring is going to carry on the covenant promise of God on earth. And so even at the expense of her own life and her own dignity, she steps in to this very messy role to say, no, his covenant, his reconciliation will still stand. Verse 5, Joshua 2 introduces us to, uh, to another woman in the story. We're familiar um, uh, to Rahab, uh, who's a prostitute hiding Israelite spies uh, in Jericho. And she chooses to hide them, and she tells them, The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So she also is an example of one who risked her life and her body by defying the orders of Jericho's king. She's lying about the spies' whereabouts. She knows this is something that could get her killed. And as she sacrifices to pursue God's reconciliation covenant, now she joins in the lineage of Christ, and her family was spared as the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Verse 5 also tells us about Ruth, right? Many of us are familiar with Ruth, the Moabite woman who stays with her mother-in-law Naomi after her husband, Naomi's son, dies. But we tend to overlook pieces of her redemption story in her relationship with Boaz. Right? So in the story when they meet, Boaz takes care of Ruth and Naomi as far as their physical needs of provision goes, right? He makes sure Ruth has a good job, that she's safe. You know, none of the other men are allowed to essentially hit on her or go after her. And, uh, you know, Boaz makes sure that Ruth gets to bring home the leftovers to Naomi, that they always have enough physically. But in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi says, Ruth, I still have to find a home for you. Right, That even though this guy has been physically providing for you, he has not spiritually given you the redemption that we need. Right, We're being taken care of, but we haven't been redeemed. And so Naomi comes up with this plan. She sends Ruth to Boaz to seduce him. In the Hebrew language, when Ruth goes to Boaz, it's, it's a very seductive language. Basically, she says, look, if Ruth can seduce Boaz, maybe he'll marry her and then we will have redemption. And Naomi's plan works, right? Ruth seduces Boaz. Boaz realizes, oh man, you know, I've been physically providing for them, but I haven't met their redemptive need yet. And once Naomi and Ruth kind of help him see this and he marries Ruth, now Ruth is mentioned in the line of Christ, another one who sacrificed to pursue God's covenant of reconciliation. Verse 6, uh, her name is not here, but it's she's listed as the wife of Uriah. We know her as Bathsheba. She's called in to sleep with King David while her husband is away at war, and she becomes pregnant, uh, but she ends up losing her son because of David's abuse of her life and then murdering her husband, right? So Bathsheba goes through the sacrifice, not only of, you know, her body being abused and then her body literally losing the child because of what David has chosen to do. She lost her dignity, her son, her husband in this. And yet God blesses her with bringing her another son, Solomon, and bringing her into this redemption story that even though Bathsheba has sacrificed greatly at the hands of King David, 
she is now a, the, a mother in the lineage of Christ. She is part of God's covenant of reconciliation. Verse 16, Mary, Jesus' mother, would have certainly been labeled an outcast for being a virgin found pregnant before marriage. Yet Luke records in his gospel account, she accepts this potential for a life of shame and declaring, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Luke 1.38. Right? So as Mary learns of the reconciliation God intends to do in and through her, she says, Whatever shame or things I will encounter on earth are going to be worth it if this reconciliation plan comes through. Guys, I think honestly it is hard for us to sometimes fully understand and relate with these women as heroes because they don't fit into our perception of God's moral design, right? Tamar and Ruth seduced men. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba, a victim of sexual abuse. Mary has a child out of wedlock. And we tend to focus more of our energy and our efforts on the men in these stories. Judah, Boaz, the Israelite spies, David, Joseph. Look at Look at the things that they did and the way that they, you know, heroically treated the women and redeemed and reigned and, and everything. But guys, Matthew says it is the women here, the women's story that teaches us about how Christ has the right to redeem and to reign over us. These women are bearers of God's covenant because they, quote, did the right thing or did what was expected of them. They're, they're in Christ's line because they knew the reconciliation work God was doing and pursued its fulfillment even at the costliest sacrifice. These women often lost dignity, lost, some of them lost their husbands, some of them lost their children, and yet they are mothers in the lineage of of Christ. <coughs> Mothers in the lineage of Christ. This is the same story we saw in Hebrews, right? That God established his reconciliation through his person, not in keeping his law. This is Christ's testimony, church, continuing the stories of David, Abraham, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. We see Jesus Christ has the right to redeem us. He has the right to reign over us. And why? Because he pursues God's covenant of reconciliation. So what do we do with this? And I think the reality we see in Christ today is extremely relatable for us, New River Fellowship, and for, for any who are listening, because it relates to many of us in different seasons of life, especially in seasons of transition. Right At our, at our church here, we have many who are transitioning into new seasons of life. And I'm sure many of you listening are in similar seasons as well. And guys, when we are in seasons of transition, what's the question at the top of our minds, right? We all want to know what's the best way to handle this. We may dress up that question to say, what does God want me to do? But really, at the end of the day, what we're seeking is what's the best way to handle this, right? What's the right answer? What's the best thing to do? You know, what is God trying to get me to accomplish? Like, we that's really... What's at the forefront of our minds? You know, so we have people who go from full-time work to retirement. That question then becomes, well, how should I spend my time? 
right? You, people start thinking about what's the legacy that I'm going to leave where I serve and where I volunteer. I've been working for 40 years and I'm about to hit retirement. And you know what? Much of my life has been defined by my job. Now, <laughs> it's not. So what is going to define my life? I mean, these are all the questions that, you know, through talking with people who are going through this transition, they wrestle with moving from full-time work to retirement. Those who transition from job to job, right? What's the best job for me to do now? What, what didn't work about my last job that I want to avoid in the next one? What's the best thing for the season of life I'm in? Those who are transitioning in marriage and parenting, right? What's the best way to live with this new spouse or the best way to live with this new child? What does it look like to best love them well? Uh, here at New River Fellowship in different seasons of, of ministry we're transitioning through, you know, we've laid out our mission, our vision, our values. We've grown in a couple key areas and we're kind of asking the question now, what does it look like to keep growing? What's the best way for us to do that. And guys, I think our default way of answering this question is simply to figure out what's right and what's wrong, right? Look at our different options, figure out the right, the wrong. We, we want to make sure we pursue what's right. We reject what's wrong. And look, this is good. Okay. I'm not saying this is not helpful, but it's not always best. Look at Joseph, right? And in Matthew one today, Joseph saw his virgin fiance very clearly pregnant. Very much a cultural no-no. And his decision was to do the right thing in divorcing her quietly. right? But God tells Joseph to look at the example of all these generations and trusting that God, who is the standard of truth and righteousness, never fails to uphold what he considers right and wrong. Joseph, your focus is to trust me and pursue my reconciliation right where you're at. So then if we're going to follow the example of Matthew 1, trusting that Jesus does have the right to redeem and to rule over us because he pursues God's covenant of reconciliation, instead of asking what's the best thing to do, guys, I, want, I think there are three better questions we can ask, especially in any transition. First question, where am I at? Right? If we look at our jobs, our hobbies, our interests, the things that fill up our time, where am I at? What opportunities has God given you to pursue reconciliation? Right, Focus right now on the season that God has placed you in. It's going to be different for each of you. But instead of asking yourself, man, what's the best thing to do? Instead, ask, where am I at right now, today? Where am I at? Second question, who am I near? Right? Who do I interact with in each of these areas? Guys, I think if we were honest, we'd have to admit much of our news bombards us with people or places or problems that we are either very far away from or that we can't really do much about. And if that's where our focus is, we're going to be discouraged and depressed. But you know what you can do? You can focus on who is right there with you. Who am I near? Right? That trains our brains to focus in on saying, who has God put me in front of today? Where am I at? Who am I near? And the last question, how is God at work? If God's reconciliation comes through his person, then look at the people around you. What are they struggling with? 
based off your relationship with them, how can you go share God's heart? You know, look at your job. How does the work that you do reflect the image of God? How can you show that to others you work alongside? You know, in our church, we've got lawyers who get opportunities to work out reconciliation in the law that nobody else does. We've got healthcare workers who work out reconciliation through bringing healing to others. We've got people who have all sorts of different trade skills that work reconciliation out just by fixing things, right? Like you, you don't think fixing an HVAC unit is, is a big deal uh, to, to anyone who has a broken HVAC unit. It is a huge deal. Right, so, so you are working out reconciliation for others, even in fixing things. We have service industry men and women, people are working at restaurants, people working in retail. Right, You guys are serving reconciliation in meeting others' needs. Right, We all have a part to play in this. And Matthew encourages us because Jesus has this right to redeem and reign over us because he pursues God's covenant reconciliation. He says, look, this is what Jesus did. This is who he was, where he was at, who he was with, where God was leading him. He worked out reconciliation at any given moment. He had the right to do it. He had the right to lead us in doing it. And so if we are followers of Christ with him, redeeming us, with him, reigning us, then we learn to take up this life of pursuing God's covenant of reconciliation as well. So we'll pray today from the Valley of Vision, the prayer Christ-likeness. We say, Father of Jesus, dawn returns, but without thy light, no inward, no outward light can profit. Give me the saving lamp of thy spirit that I may see thee, the God of my salvation, the delight of my soul, rejoicing over me in love. I commend my heart to thy watchful care, for I know its treachery and power. Guard its every portal from the wily enemy, and give me quick discernment of his deadly arts. Help me to recognize his bold disguise as an angel of light, and bid him be gone. May my words and works alert others to the highest walks of faith and love. May loiters be quickened to greater diligence by my example. May worldlings be won to delight in acquaintance with thee. May the timid and irresolute be warned of coming doom by my zeal for Jesus. Cause me to be a mirror of thy grace, to show others the joy of thy service. May my lips be well-tuned symbols sounding thy praise. Let a halo of heavenly-mindedness sparkle around me, and a lamp of kindness sunbeam my path. Teach me the happy art of attending to these things temporal with a mind intent on things eternal. Send me forth to have compassion on the ignorant and miserable. Help me to walk as Jesus walked, my only Savior and perfect model. His mind my inward guest, his meekness my covering garb. Let my happy place be amongst the poor in spirit, my delight the gentle ranks of the meek. Let me always esteem others better than myself and find in true humility and heirdom in two worlds. Amen. Guys, thank you for listening and for joining us as we've been walking through Matthew. I did really quick want to share, um, over the next couple of weeks, we are we're getting to celebrate some new life coming into the world. Um, our daughter is coming any day now. Um, Charlie's excited, Jefferson's excited, Abigail and I are 
very nervous and very excited and all the emotions at the same time. Um, so with that, I uh, you will probably hear some other voices teaching scripture in the next couple weeks here. Um, hopefully you'll get to hear from our worship leader, John Marshall, who um, I deeply respect as a as a follower of Christ, first off, uh, as a Bible teacher, um, as a husband, as a father, he's he's a wonderful um, influence, a wonderful mentor for me. So I'm, I'm grateful that you'll get to hear him teaching in the next coming weeks. Um, you'll also hopefully get to hear from Nick Alley, who um, overlapped with me when we were both students at Tech. He was a freshman when I was a senior. Uh, we got to know each other a little bit there, I would I'd like to think I would be one of the many, um, you know, mentors and shaping people he's had in his life. But he is actually being ordained this Sunday, the 23rd of April, uh, at his church. And uh, he's going to be in town to share the word uh, as well in a couple weeks. So really cool um Really special for me to get to see people who I've poured into and who've poured into me getting to love on our church family and getting to walk with them through the word of God. Um, so yeah, hopefully you will be blessed and be encouraged as you hear the word from them. We'll be back at some point um, and we're going to be sticking through Matthew, I think, throughout the summer. So stay with us. Keep walking in this journey with us. It's been a very, I hope it's been beneficial for you. It's been a really good challenge for me each week to say, okay, you know, forget for a second all the things that I'm looking to do, all the things that I, you know, assume I already know about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And when I see him, if I am one of his followers, if I'm made in the image of God, that is on display in Jesus. How does that change me? We love you guys. Thanks for being with us. And hopefully we'll get to see you soon.